Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, I will take advantage of this period of the two Easter's, the Western Christian Easter and the Eastern Christian Easter, and the appearance on the calendar of Agama of this strange thing, which very, very few of you, only if you've been here the previous years, you've heard about this. Otherwise, 99.99% is sure you haven't heard about this. The so-called Shambhala Easter. And um, I think uh, this is a good time to start talking about Shambhala. And uh, this subject of Shambhala is uh, so important that it comes up about two times every season, every year. It is so important that uh, a little bit of it has been included in our yoga courses with a presentation of the Yantra of Shambhala and uh, a bit of lecture about that. A couple of these uh, previous satsangs or lectures are probably even uploaded either in audio format or in video format out there on uh, the internet or on the channel of uh, Agama. And um, there was also the possibility that uh, I discussed with the administration of the school that I said let people see the videos uh, because uh, now it's the time for the, this subject of Shambhala. But since I'm here present in the school at this time, I said why uh, make people just watch a video when I'm here physically and I can actually do the lecture live uh, with the people. Always when I do it live, there will be a certain variance, a certain variability, because I'm talking freely and I'm talking according to this state of inspiration. And then I decided that actually I wanted to make it more systematic. <coughs> Every time when I do the Shambhala lecture, and I think there are probably about three versions of this subject available under one format or another, Every time when I do this lecture, I experience a certain frustration because the subject is extremely thrilling. For me, this subject is extremely dear to me because it is a subject which was very dear <coughs> to the Tibetan yogis and to the Tibetan lamas. And um, I have a great sympathy for that spiritual culture. And um, I think it is a subject which is very actual because a lot of things in spirituality may be a bit strange. We talk about spirituality, we talk about paranormal things, we talk, it's very easy to find controversy. It's very easy, especially in an age where 30% of the population of the world is atheistic and God knows how many percent of the population of the world are religious, but they are religious into a, either a hysterical, histrionical, fake way, or in a fanatic, narrow-minded way. Um, when we deal with things, for example, about healing, that's very down-to-earth. Like yoga for healing, yoga for health, you take blood tests and x-rays before, then you do the yoga for six weeks every day, two times per day, then you go and take blood tests and x-rays again, and there is no bullshit. 
Either it works or it doesn't work. Like you don't need to believe anything. There is no need for hypocrisy. There is no need for doubts because things are working or not working. With these spiritual things for me, always when I talk about Shambhala, I want to show to you that Shambhala is something which really happens now to you, to this planet. And it's very down to earth. And it's a bridge between a sort of a spiritual belief, which can be very easily put in doubt, and facts, which are quotable from the human history, and which are very difficult to put in doubt. And that's why uh, Shambhala is a very precious subject, actually, and it has a lot of difficulties because of that. And every time when I want to do a lecture on Shambhala, it's not possible to really do it in two hours. It's not really possible to do it in three hours. I tried to do it in two parts. And then one part was two hours and the second part was three hours. So it got to be a five-hour lecture in the end. And still I was frustrated because I could not bring up the facts. In the previous years... We had a meditation in the school done every Wednesday evening, which was a Shambhala meditation, and where one of the advanced teachers was coming and reading from different essential books which are written on this subject, reading exactly concrete down-to-earth facts which were mentioned there, history, most of it. And every time when people were doing a Shambhala meditation was like, whoa, you know, this thing is right there. It's right there. It's the fact to say that there exists a cosmic power of time called Kali, which was depicted in India as a goddess, which is black and with fangs, with fierce fangs. It's like, okay... Sure, it's just some Hindu belief, and it's a superstition, and so on. Shambhala is something which concerns the human beings directly, the human history. There are facts which are very, very disturbing, like the Dalai Lamas of Tibet, until 1930-something or whatever, 50, when Tibet went down, They were visited every year at a certain fixed point of the year. They were visited by two people, physical, like you could touch, you could hug them. Two people coming from Shambhala. Every year, they had an appointment with the Dalai Lama. So like, you know, it's like, is the Dalai Lama a terrible liar? Because they say even this Dalai Lama would say that he saw and spoke to the people from Shambhala. What's this story? No, it's like, are we talking about a total nonsense? Because here it's like a domino principle. If one thing falls, all of the things fall. If one thing stands, the other things stand as well. They are interconnected and dependent on each other. So for me, this subject of Shambhala is very thrilling. And I think it is also very thrilling for all those of you who want to do something on the face of this earth. Because Shambhala is very much related to what's happening, to the karma yoga, to the action, to the things which people do in this world. And thus, I decided, let's take it easy. I'll take it step by step. 
I don't know if this time is going to last six hours, seven hours, or nine hours, or whatever. I'll do it little by little. Start logically, start with the easy pieces of the puzzle, and slowly, slowly get and communicate this to you in a coherent way, so you understand what is this Shambhala. This Shambhala concept It's something which makes one of the basic things in metaphysics. Even when we do the metaphysical workshop in Agama, which is a very, very important workshop here in Agama, Shambhala is one of the pillars. Like it's one of the absolute consequences of what is happening. And things are like this. I will say it from the very beginning. Shambhala is basically a logical conclusion to the hypothesis of eternal life. Like in spirituality, either it's Christian or Buddhist or Hindu or Sufi or you name it, there is implicitly in every religion and every spiritual lineage of this planet, there is implicitly the following statement. Some men and women who have advanced spiritually very, very much, and they have become something which could be called saints or seers or something there like. There are men and women, therefore, who, either because they were blessed or because they did a lot of headstand and pranayama or because of whichever reason, the reason is not important, but they are listed in every spirituality, men and women who simply reached greatness. Greatness of spiritual. We could call it, in a simplified yogic way, spiritual realization. Men and women who have become spiritually realized. In Buddhism, the first and most famous example would be the Buddha himself. The Buddha himself is a man who, after 10,000 lifetimes of running in circles... One in one life became super determined to do it. He ran in the forest and sat under that body tree, did it, and reached Nirvana in a day of April or May or whenever it was, 2,500 years ago. So, the statement is that this man and these women that have reached such levels of accomplishment, because Buddha is not just one, there are many people who became like Buddha, that these people have reached something which the Christian religion would call eternal life. And eternal life would fit exactly with the Zen Buddhist proverb, which says, he who dies before dying, dies no more when dying. And that simply says the people who have reached to this state of spiritual immortality, remember it's a spiritual immortality, they may very well die physically like everybody else. Ramakrishna died, Milarepa died, Rumi died, Saint Teresa of Avila died. Everybody dies because if they would not die physically, it would be so visible. It would be like fireworks right in your face. Everybody would know it. 
they would say, look, Francis of Assisi is around since the 12th century. No? Then everybody would say, okay, what do you want more than that? That's a crushing demonstration. Like, it would be a demonstration which would be too much. Too much for the state of doubt and wishy-washiness in which humanity lives. That's why it's not allowed. Even when some yogis may have reached formidable cities which might allow them to cancel physical death for a thousand years, they would never do it visibly so that everybody can see. Because it's simply too much of a proof. And as many of you know already, there is this problem that a certain amount of proof beyond a certain level is forbidden to be given to humanity because humanity has to live in this twilight zone where it's 50-50, where there are always doubts. It's a divine law which requires that the human soul has to be in this twilight zone not to be given crushing evidence because then there will be no more spiritual effort of finding out what the truth is. There would be no more effort to be free, to choose, to find out what the truth is, because the truth would be rubbed in your face automatically, and then you would say, yeah, it's obvious. So in this way, uh, even though spiritual beings physically die, nevertheless the idea is these spiritual beings, when they die... They are different from my grandmother. Like in the Catholic Church, in many masses and many ceremonies, they have times where they pray to about a hundred saints. They say, Saint Francis of Assisi, pray for us. Saint John of the Cross, pray for us. Saint Teresa of Avila, pray to... Why don't you say, Grandmother, Granny, pray for us. Because your granny might be in hell, boiling in a cauldron. She doesn't have the time to pray for you. Even if she is not in hell, she is in some stupid astral place where she is dreaming for 300 years in a coma. She has no time to pray for you. She is busy with her own karma and she is just... Because she is not your grandmother, might very well not be a superior human being, an advanced yogini. So these normal people, 99% of the people, when they die, they just look up their own belly button. They have their own fish to fry. They have to deal with their own evolution. But when you pray to Buddha, and you say, Buddha, intercede for me, Buddha is kind of free, has no karma to deal with, He is in meditation. He is clear. He did not forget anything of what has happened in the last 25 centuries and in his life. He has the ability to meditate, to go in his crown chakra. And if he feels compassion for you, he might send you a blessing or a prayer. If Buddha sees that you are an asshole who are trying to cheat, 
then Buddha says, yeah, yeah, keep praying. Keep praying. We all know what an asshole, what a cheating asshole you are, you know. Now you are pretending that you are religious because you just got cancer, yeah. Suddenly you've become a good boy because you've got cancer. Just bite the dust, you stupid asshole, no? Like, it doesn't mean that if somebody has compassion, he has to be uh, gullible and listen to all the stupidities and all to all the hypocrisy of everybody. So, the point here being that it is claimed very clearly that the people that have reached a super high spiritual status, maybe one person in a million or less, those people, even when they die, they stay clear. They are not encumbered by any karmic burden. They don't drift in some aimless dream. They are there. They are exactly like you would be now. You can talk to Buddha. You can talk to St. Teresa of Avila. And not only that they can listen to you, but they can be operative. They can be operational. Like they can do things. For example, they say have, they can pray to Jesus or to the Virgin Mary, where they will say, have mercy of this little, there's somebody who asks me for mercy, and I think they deserve it, so please, have some, like they can pass it on. They can pass your prayer on. What I'm trying to say here is that there is this, call it a hypothesis, if you cannot do better than that, there is this hypothesis that when you practice spirituality, you transcend the average human condition. And even if you are dead, you are in a very privileged place and in a very privileged state of mind. Like Milarepa was a gigantic yogi with some cities, some powers of the mind which were hard to fathom when he describes them. You don't know if a human being is talking or who is talking there. No. Milarepa is the same right now. Milarepa li left the physical world in the 13th century. So the question is, where is Milarepa now? And wherever he is, if you say Milarepa, wherever you are, floating in the astral world or wherever your spirit is, uh, dear Milarepa, can you please help me? There is a chance that Milarepa will think you are cheating, because you are. Or there is a chance that actually you are not cheating, and Milarepa will be very open to you, and simply say, yeah, sure. So, therefore, this is true, except one Hypothesis. If you are an atheist, and if you are right, that means if there is no spirit, if there is no life after life, life after death, whatever you want to choose, if there are no parallel worlds, if there is no survival of the soul after death, and if there is therefore no God, then all this is a bullshit story. Is just selling false hopes to the crowds. It's like Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the masses. That the masses are afraid of death or whatever, and religion is selling them drugs. Nothing is true. Jesus didn't even exist. 
if he existed, he was just a heavily deluded man. There is no God. There is no afterlife. And everything which you do with prayers and mantras and whatever is going to have effect zero. And therefore, religion, spirituality is opium. If that is true, what I'm telling you tonight and in the other days can be heavily contested. It is obvious to you that I cannot make a demonstration about this. There have been much stronger and smarter people in spirituality who lived before me. Humanity wouldn't have waited till the 21st century until the very smart and strong Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati came to solve this problem. It would have been solved by Jesus or by Buddha or by Krishna or by Rumi or by Milarepa many, many centuries ago. And therefore it's not possible to solve this doubt. Because this doubt is fundamental. If there is no God and no eternity and Buddha sits under a tree hoping to reach it, then Buddha is heavily delusional and the biggest idiot that lived in the history of the world. And he would have better gone to a pub and drink and eat and be merry and just, you know, spend your life in trying to suck the marrow out of life. Try to just have some fun today because no, tomorrow nobody knows what's going to come up. That's the conundrum, that's the dilemma of materialism or spiritualism. And I cannot solve it. Nobody in the history of the world has been able to make a demonstration which was like 100% crushing, crushing evidence to which nobody could even tweet, you know, like, but, 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 but. there was no but. Never. It never happened. Therefore, it's not going to happen tonight in this lecture. This subject is left open. It's up to you to decide. I presume you are on the side of spirituality if you are in a workshop like this instead of being in a pizzeria drinking your margaritas or something. So if you are here tonight, I suppose you have some sort of spiritual temptation or curiosity, at least, if not more. And that's why the point being this. If spirituality is true, it's a very big if, right? And it's something which people have to feel intuitively. If spirituality is true, then there is a corollary to it. Where is Milarepa now? Where is Swami Shivananda now? Where is Ma Ananda Mai now? Where is Saint Varvara Saint Barbara or Varvara, whatever you pronounce her name like. Where is Rumi now? Now, right now, this second. This is what Shambhala is. Shambhala basically says they are all in Shambhala. Which means when they have died, they have gone together in a special place. Because otherwise you may ask yourself, doesn't religion keep people separate? Like there have been Christian saints living in the same century and in the same geographical area with maybe Sufi mystics. As far as we know, they never went and shaked hands. 
Like there were barriers of religion and there were fanatic Christians on one side of the barrier and fanatic Muslims on the other side of the barrier. Maybe the Christian saint and the Sufi saint, they would have given each other a hug. But they couldn't do it on the planet Earth among people. Saint Francis of Assisi, who was such a madman who would have crossed the borders, he went in the 13th century, in the 13th century, he went to Jerusalem. It was like one in three made it alive to Jerusalem. Like it was very dangerous, the travel in itself. So Francis of Assisi sailed and walked to Jerusalem. Guess why? To convert the sultan of the Muslims to Christianity. Like he went straight into the lion's den. He asked for an audience and boldly, imagine there are hundreds of people there in the court of the sultan, one of these Jalaluddin's or whoever, whatever his name was, one of the great personalities, one of the great, the conqueror, a guy, the guy who conquered Jerusalem, so a great warrior. And he said, Sultan, I came to you to demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ and the divinity of Jesus Christ and consequently to convert you to Christianity. He said in front of everybody. He said, I came to convert you. The Sultan, right? A big Manipuristic warrior. Apparently a very honorable and dignified man. Like a man of honor, of principle. But still... A conqueror, a killer, a man who entered with his horse in Jerusalem, you know. It's like like a warrior. He started laughing. And he said, I have seen a hundred uh, preachers, a hundred crazy preachers like you. And what's new about you, you know, it's like and so on. At which uh, Francis said, I didn't come to just talk to you. I came to do things to you. Because obviously I realize you need some facts. And he said, uh, I have a very simple thing. Like, let's cut the bullshit. Let's not do theology and words and so on. Let's go directly to facts. So he said, Sultan, please order to make in the middle of this room, it was the throne room, in the middle of this hall, order to make a huge fire, a bonfire. They can pick up wood in half an hour, bring wood and set it on fire. And I on one side, and anybody that you pick up or chooses to from your side, we are going to pray to our God, and we are going to walk straight into the fire. And let's see who of us the fire doesn't burn. Let's see clearly with whom God is. If I'm wrong, I'll go into the fire and get burned badly or dead. If your guy doesn't get an answer to his prayers, then he's going to burn. So he said, I'm ready to show you this one. Everybody shut their pants instantaneously because nobody, like there was a challenge. He says, I'm going into fire. Who there, who thinks God is with them? And like, walk with me into the fire if you really believe that Mohammed is stronger than Jesus. Let's see. The sultan went white in his face and he said, I don't think there would be anybody around here who dares to pick up on that challenge. 
at which Francis of Assisi went double. He simply said, then Sultan, I will do it alone. You don't even need to send somebody for comparison. Just ask them to do the fire and I will walk into the fire alone. And if the fire doesn't burn me, you become Christian. Do you think they did it? They didn't do it. Right? And the Sultan respected him very much. He said, Francis, you came to Jerusalem to make a convert. You did not. He said, imagine what would happen if I would really convert to Christianity. He said, these people will kill both you and I in five minutes. It's like you, you, you live in a world of spirit. You are an idealist. You don't know how the world is running. These people don't care if you can walk into the fire unharmed. It still offends so many superstitions and prejudices which they have that even in front of such a demonstration, they would still be unmoved. And they would prefer to kill you and me. So he says, this is not going to happen. So he said, you came to make a convert. You did not. But you made a friend. He said, I respect you for this and you are my friend. You know, like I've never seen anybody like you. I don't know if anybody has seen anybody like you. No? So, and that is when Jalaluddin relaxed the religious pressure and allowed the Christians in the Jerusalem area to go and do their worship because of one man. Because of this. So, what I'm trying to tell you with this long convoluted story is this. In the physical world, the truth has been said by Buddha, by Krishna, by Jesus, by Moses, by whoever in whatever ways. And this has created mental barriers which very few people can pass. Here you come to Agama and you find Jewish people, Christian people, Buddhist people, Muslim people, Hindu people sitting by, side by side and doing yoga and meditating and if you came last Sunday on the Easter meditation, there were at least five or ten Jewish people meditating on the resurrection of Christ in the Shiva Hall of Agama. In Jerusalem, they would be crucified, crucified in public if their family would know what they are doing in Kopangan. No? It's like it's very not kosher for Orthodox Jews to praise Jesus in meditation. In Agama, they do. In Agama, we cross all these inter-religious and intercultural borders because the yogis are notoriously open-minded and they don't care about the religious limitations. But in 99% of this humanity, those borderlines exist very much. The Catholics and the Protestants are still fighting with each other in Northern Ireland. And it's like just two variabilities of the Christian religion. Two denominations of the same religion. And 30 years ago, they were shooting each other happily. No? So it's like the religious barriers are extremely hard to cross on earth. Because on earth, people live in the middle of their ego and in the middle of their personality. And they have samskaras which are formed in their mind. And it's impossible for them to surpass these things without doing yoga or a very solid training. But for Swami Shivananda and for Rumi 
and for Teresa of Avila and for Buddha. All these things are very easy where they are. At the level of consciousness where they are and not having a physical body limited by its samskaras and education, it's very easy. So that's why this is the first shock of this question. That if you ask, where is Swami Shivananda? Where is Teresa of Avila? Where is Rumi? You'd expect that somewhere in heavens, if it's true that the spirits of the high beings still exist somewhere, right now, they are somewhere, and they can be here in a fraction of a second because there is no space and time, or there are different rules of space and time. So they, if you ask Swami Shivananda for something, he listens to you instantaneously. It's not like a human being who says, I was not home and I didn't hear my phone calling, right? It's like they have multitasking, to put it like this, to simplify it. Therefore, it, there appears the idea that up there, even the high spirits are in a sort of ghettos. There is a Muslim ghetto, there is a Hindu ghetto, there is a Christian ghetto, and definitely there would be a Jewish ghetto and so on. Everybody is clinging to their own stuff. According to the information which we have about Shambhala from so many seers and from so many centuries and thousands of years of tradition, that's simply not true. That simply says all these great souls, in the moment when they cross the threshold of death, then there is no more social problem that this community has to defend its own thing and that community has to defend its own thing and this and that. And there is a sort of a brotherhood. There is a sort of oneness because ultimately the truth is just one. Remember always the beautiful message. This was one of the highlights. This was really a Shambhala-like resonance in the message of the Theosophical House a hundred years ago when the Theosophical movement was really strong and enthusiastic. They had this motto on their books which said there is no religion higher than truth. Christianity cannot be higher than truth. Judaism cannot be higher than truth. Buddhism cannot be higher than. The highest thing is truth itself. Every religion has a certain amount of bullshit into it because the religion is a fairy tale, is a story which is told to millions and millions of people. And most of those people are illiterate or very simple-minded and then they have to receive a story like a Walt Disney cartoon. Religion is a little bit like for children. Ah, it has theology, it has a department of theology which deals with the people who are very intelligent and well educated so they also have something to chew. So there is a department for intelligent people. But most of the religion doesn't even use that intelligent part. It's a simplified thing which addresses to the masses, which goes simple to the masses. And that's why what I'm trying to say here is the following. If the truth is just one, that's again a tenet of spirituality. Like, is there a God of the Christians and the God of the Jews and the God of the Muslims and a God of the Hindus? If there is something in this universe 
which is infinite, eternal, absolute, immutable, can there be two? If there are two, it cannot be absolute, because then you have to define the relative position of this. What is the position of Allah compared to Jehovah? Is Jehovah bigger, older, smaller, stronger, or what? There will always be comparison. But if Jehovah is Allah, and that's just another name, then everybody keeps talking about the same thing. What about the void of the Buddhists? Yeah, the void is described as omnipresent, eternal, infinite, absolute. How many such things can be? Just one. If it's absolute, it's always just one. So therefore, as we presume, as it is logical to presume in metaphysics, that the truth is just one, you would expect that at least the people who are on the top of the mountain, they have realized that the truth is just one. Because even if even Rumi and Milarepa did not discover that the truth is just one, it means they are very, very far from realization. Then they don't deserve to be called spiritually realized human beings. And thus, I'm telling you all this detailed story to show to you that this Shambhala is not at all a logical contradiction. It's a logical contradiction only if you are an atheist. If you are an atheist, then Shambhala is a real weird thing. But if you are not, Shambhala is the only logical conclusion of the existence of the subject of spirituality and spiritual practice. And basically, Shambhala answers to the question, where is Swami Shivananda now? The answer simply would be in Shambhala. So, let's start with a series of simple questions to unroll, to unfold this great mystery. So, what is Shambhala then in a primitive first? It's much, much more than here, but it comes only by describing the different facets of it. What is Shambhala? Shambhala is a place, not a physical place, a place in the universe of some sort. Shambhala is a plane of the universe or a place in a plane of the universe. Shambhala could be called in this way a world, exactly like you have etheric worlds, astral worlds, mental worlds, a world. In Sanskrit, that would be called a loka, a plane of the universe. Shambhala, if there is a place where there are all the enlightened beings of all the traditions, like imagine what a place that would be. A place where you meet with Moses, with Elijah, with Milarepa, with Bodhidharma, with Ramakrishna, with Shankaracharya, with Adi Shankaracharya that is, with Teresa of Avila and with John the Baptist and everybody, the who's who. The who's who of all the spiritualities of the world, Guru Nanak, if you want to have somebody from Sikhism, from any religion, major or minor, the who's who is in the very, very super select club, which is called Shambhala. 
what a place that would be. What sort of place, right? And exception made of the fact that right now, on the planet Earth, there may be born a hundred enlightened beings. It's dubious if now, today, there are a hundred people that can systematically reach the state of Samadhi on all this Earth. That would make almost like one in every country. It's very, very debatable if there are a hundred alive now. And the ones which are not alive, let me not hold you in suspense. I'm just going to use a number close to what is vehiculated in the metaphysical circles. I'll even tell you where that source of information is, but later, because it's, uh, I, I don't have the necessary introduction to it. Let's say, until now, in this yuga, in this cosmic cycle, let's say there have been a hundred thousand Buddhas. Five, ten thousand of them in Christianity, ten thousand of them in Buddhism, ten thousand of them in Islam, ten thousand of them in Hinduism, and something like this. In all, when you pack them all together, you've got a very, very select thing. Like how many people have lived on the face of the earth in the last twenty thousand years? Probably way more than 10 billion. Out of 10 billion, there is a 100,000. You calculate the percentage then, how much percentage of the population is, who are the top ones, who are the Swami Shivanandas and the Teresas of Avila of this human civilization. Some of them would be alive, let's say 100, and 100,000 are on the other side. That means if they are in Shambhala, the first thing is that Shambhala is not a physical place. If you can go to Shambhala and meet with Swami Vivekananda of India, if Swami Vivekananda the Great is there, then definitely that's not a physical place. It's not a cave, it's not a tunnel, it's not a fortress, it's not a city. It's simply not a physical place. Because Swami Shivananda and Swami Vivekananda and others, they have died and their bodies was burned or buried or something. So definitely you can't go and meet them physically. Somewhere. I'm saying this because this story of Shambhala is so secret and kept so unclear that when people talk, there have been people who wrote PhD theses on what is this Shambhala. There is a woman called Victoria LePage who wrote a book or something which is called The Mystery of Shambhala or something like this. And the first half of the book is brilliant because she lists the knowledge. What do we know about Shambhala until now? But she doesn't understand metaphysics. Being an academic anthropologist, she actually probably is an atheist herself. So she doesn't understand anything about planes, chakras, lokas, parallel universes made of energy, and this is completely beyond her academic abilities. And therefore, the only conclusion which she can draw from those facts is that Shambhala is a sort of a diffuse institution like a sort of an underground organization 
which exists through multiple cities in Central Asia. Like a thousand wise men and women, who, like she thinks about physical people living in Samarkand and Tashkent and Ulaanbaatar and Lhasa and places like this. Why not Afghanistan, Kabul and stuff like this. So people can't even understand that we are not talking about something physical. People are completely blocked. I've seen gurus of yoga who had the incredible stupidity to say that the chakras are the same with the endocrine glands of the body. Completely stupid because there are things mentioned about the chakras which cannot be explained by hormones. Like what hormones do you have to produce to produce the phenomenon of levitation. Ah, but then we come to the point where you can say actually levitation probably doesn't even exist. Good. In this way you have buried it completely. You have transformed yoga in gymnastics with some endocrine gland regulation to it. Like yoga is becoming just a mechanical anatomical thing in that case. So in the similar way, even this subject of Shambhala can be trivialized and materialized, while the tradition is very clear. Shambhala represents a subtle zone. I call it sometimes like a buffer, because here is how it goes. In the Catholic Church, you can say, Saint Francis of Assisi, pray for us. So it's difficult to reach to Jesus. Jesus is much higher, much more busy, and if you just talk bullshit, Jesus won't even hear you. Francis of Assisi was one of us, once upon a time. He has dealt with human beings of many kinds. He can have more time for you. He is a bit lower on the pyramid and he, can, he is more accessible. So I can't pray to Jesus, but I'm saying, Francis, you made friends with Jesus nine centuries ago. Please pray for me. So it's like prayer through somebody who is very good at prayer. So in the same way, it's with Shambhala. When Swami Shivananda passed away, there were two of his female disciples who tried to find out what happened to him after death. And they did a very, very tough tapas in which they did a long-term fast together with very advanced practice of pranayama, like hours every day of pranayama. And after a number of days, I forgot exactly how many days, tens of days, this episode is described by Swami Vishnu Devananda in his book, Meditation and Mantras. It's one of the appendixes. In one of the appendixes at the end of the book, he describes this, like, look, if those, for those of you who don't know, and so on, let me give you an example. And he talks about these two ladies who did a strong tapas, and the purpose of their tapas was that Swami Shivananda would give them a sign. They were not living together. They were two separate practitioners. In the same night, after 50 days or something, they both of them had a dream like a vision in which Swami Shivananda appeared to them, both in the same night, at the same time, and told them something. 
When they woke up in the morning, the first thing they went to each other and they said, look what happened to me last night. And they discovered that the same thing happened to both of them and the message was pretty much identical for both of them. Like there is always a variability produced by the samskaras, by the impurities of your own mind and your own wishful thinking, which distorts a little bit. But taking into account those distortions, the messages were... And then they realized that indeed both of them had the result of their tapas fulfilled because Swami Shivananda actually came to them and talked to them. And what Swami Shivananda told to them can be summed up like this. After I died, my activity on earth was appreciated by God. Therefore, at the final judgment, I got a very good result. And because of this good result, I'm now placed in a place of high responsibility in the invisible world. And I'm given, because of my friendliness to humanity, I'm given a position in which I listen to humanity, I am helping humanity. So Swami Shivananda transmitted the message by saying, don't be afraid, I'm here for all of you who listen to me, who read my books, who got my message, any one of you who wants, just call my name and ask for my help, I am there for you and I am capable to help you. I am put in a place where I'm given a certain warrant, like I'm given some freedom to actually help you. That was the message of Swami Shivananda. That is Shambhala. He didn't call it Shambhala, but that is Shambhala. Shambhala is the place where Rumi is now and from where he can help you. So this is the idea of Shambhala. The idea of Shambhala is, and it was very strong in India and Tibet, that ever since there has been spiritual practice on planet Earth, and the metaphysicians think that there were very advanced human civilizations even 40,000 years ago, before the Satya Yuga, 20-something, 25,000 years ago, before that there was another Kali Yuga and another, like another cycle. It's cycles without end and humanity did not start 25,000 years ago. Humanity started maybe 400,000 years ago and in those 400,000 years and so on, there have been like 80 cycles of evolution in humanity in which in every one of them there was a Satya Yuga and the Kali Yuga and all this. And therefore, we definitely are not the first cycle of evolution on this planet. And therefore, there have been many other Swami Shivanandas and so on belonging to other cycles of humanity which we don't even know about and they have been around. So, Shambhala is a plane a place, a world, a subtle world, a buffer, an institution. Why do I call it a buffer? Because it's called a buffer, because Shambhala simply says that Swami Shivananda is sitting up there somewhere, and he's thinking, what should be done? Like, I, Swami Shivananda, I'm ready to go. I have helped my fellow men for 40 years, while I was on earth, and now I want to help some more. Am I just sitting here and just waiting for somebody to call for my name? 
What will happen in 200 years when people, almost everybody has forgotten my name completely? There have been people who were born and who are now in Shambhala since 3,000 years. You don't know their names, but they are in Shambhala. So what do they do when nobody even remembers their name because it's not in the history books? So obviously they do something. That's something which they do. Either they meditate or they burn negative karma or whatever they do will always be in accordance to what the Christians call the will of God and the Hindus call the Dharma, the righteousness, the order of the universe. And because of this, this is exactly what we're talking about in this story of Shambhala. We are talking about men and women who are somewhere in a place of continuity of consciousness, but who act strictly in accordance to the will of God. Like they are not mavericks who do whatever they want, whenever they want, because there are rules of the game. Try to realize, some of these people may be spiritual, very spiritual, but not very gifted in a paranormal way. Try to think about the super example of Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Maharshi was a yogi who lived in the first half of the 20th century. He passed away in 1953. And Ramana Maharshi was considered enlightened, a fully enlightened yogi. He is the one who generated this terminology of supreme self and self-realization. It's his words. And Ramana Maharishi declared very clearly for everybody who wanted to listen to him, that he did not have any paranormal ability. Like people said, Guruji, Ramana, sir, is it true that some people can see the spirits of the dead just as we see each other and can speak to them clearly like this? Like, can you meet with somebody dead from your family and talk straight like this? Ramana Maharishi said, yes, it is true. But he said, please don't ask me to do this for you, because I don't have this gift. I don't have this paranormal ability. Like what? You are enlightened, but you can't even talk to somebody who is dead? Yes, because you are talking about two totally different abilities. Having one doesn't involve having the other. People who can talk to the dead are not necessarily enlightened, and people who are enlightened don't necessarily have the city of talking to the dead. People think that if Buddha reached nirvana, he had to have paranormal abilities. That's completely not true, and it's an allegation. It's just people's wild imagination, but it is not substantiated by anything. And that's why in Shambhala, if there are a 100,000 people, some of them will be like Ramana Maharishi. Enlightened, ready to give you a blessing, but they cannot heal a cancer by doing Jedi tricks like this. You know, they can't. They don't have that siddhi. That's a siddhi. There are people who can heal cancer like this, and they are not at all enlightened. So those are completely different branches of human accomplishment. But 
in those 100,000, there are some which are like Milarepa. And Milarepa is not like Ramana Maharishi. Milarepa is as enlightened as Ramana Maharishi, plus the fact that Milarepa can move the earth on his little finger. Like Milarepa really had an array of paranormal powers which were out of this world completely. When you read his self-biography, when you reach to the paragraph where he starts describing the results of his practice, it's just a page and a half, but it's like written by somebody from another planet. You know, like your jaw is dropping completely, and you say, this was a human being who actually lived in the 12th century in Tibet, and are you sure he's not crazy? Like, you know, like Milarepa is something frightening. He could pretty much do anything he wanted. He actually wrote it in this way, that when I reached this, I, I was able to do whatever I wanted, how, whichever way I wanted. You know, like it becomes like almightiness. So that is why Shambhala is a sort of an institution, buffer, place, and it has a function of being between man, humanity, and divinity. Like when Swami Shivananda sits there, he says, I wonder why. what is God going to do next? He closes his eyes, he goes in Sahasrara, he is in Samadhi, he is in the state of ecstasy, he is in communion with God, and suddenly he knows. And he says, aha, interesting times are coming. Mm. No, Like he, God tells him what's going to happen to the earth before you and I know down here. It's a buffer. It's an in-between somewhere. The people from Shambhala know both the past and a lot of the future. The future is not 100% outlined. But remember that Nostradamus, when he was buried, he died in 1570, something, or 80, whatever, somewhere late in the 16th century. And Nostradamus predicted that somebody is going to desecrate his grave two centuries later, and that that person will die very soon after doing that. Not as a punishment. He didn't say, I'll take revenge. He simply said, there are two events. Somebody will desecrate my grave, and they will die. It happened during the French Revolution in 1793 or 5 or whatever it was. In the French Revolution, a drunk revolutionary came up with a myth which said that if anybody will drink wine from the skull of Nostradamus, they will get the same prophetic abilities as Nostradamus. So his grave was known. So this guy, simply because the French Revolution was against God and everything, they took a shovel and simply he dug him, dug him out. Guess what? They found the coffin. Inside the coffin there was the skeleton. After two centuries there was only a skeleton left. And guess what was with the skeleton? The skeleton had no clothes, almost rotten clothes. And on top of those clothes, there was a big metallic medallion. Like, a, like the Germans had these collars, the German soldiers, like a plate 
on the chest. And on that plate on the chest, it was written 5th of September 1793. The exact day when this happened. And later, that soldier drank wine from the skull. And then a stray bullet hit him in the head and died on the spot. Just a weird accident during revolution times. So, you, you may say that the future depends on your decisions and on my decisions. But in the case of Nostradamus, after 200 years, it was fulfilled to the millimeter. So humanity didn't manage to deviate too much from what Nostradamus had seen centuries ahead. That's why it's true that the future is not written, but it's true that most human beings are mechanical robots which act moved by the planets and the stars, and that's why the future is very, very predictable. So, roughly speaking, Shambhala, not only that they know the past, as it actually was, but they know, because many things from the past are not known. Well, it's like, how many of you know that Tibet, in the Second World War, fought together with Adolf Hitler and that there were Tibetan soldiers with German uniforms in Berlin. How many of you know that a baron from Germany called Baron von, von Ungarn, so he was from some Austro-Hungarian domain, Baron von Ungarn in 1930-something became the Bogdokhan of Mongolia, like the follower of Kublai Khan and what is a baron from Germany to become the Bogdokan of the Mongols? There are lots of things which you have not learned in school and which are part of this forbidden history, which would show you, like, wait a second, what was actually happening? Like, did the Dalai Lama condone that his soldiers were friendly to Hitler? Yes. And guess what? The CIA and the MI6, they know this. That's why Dalai Lama will never be king of Tibet again. And they allowed him to follow. To fall, to, because in the Second World War, the Tibetans were the enemy. And there was a bill to pay to those people. So the Chinese were allowed to just go and do whatever they wanted. Because things were... So there are many, many hidden things in history which might explain a lot of things which happened and are happening and others. Shambhala not only that knows the accurate history of things, but Shambhala also knows what God's intentions are, what the plan is. That's why I call it a buffer. Let me give you an example. 2,000 years ago, a great spiritual presence came on this earth. That's what we celebrate on Easter, actually on Christmas, but on Easter it's the final outcome of that. I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus, according to Vedantic, to Vedic mysticism, is an avatar. He is not a human being like you and I. He is a descent. He is a spirit from heaven, descended to earth for a mission. He did his mission in three years and a half, and that was the end of it. So, Jesus is not from Shambhala. Jesus comes from above Shambhala. Jesus is bigger than Shambhala. But Shambhala 
had to know, like somebody in Shambhala, at least the most clairvoyant and the most developed, the most paranormal and spiritual one person in Shambhala, could have come to the other and say, hey, boys, girls, pay attention. There's a guy called Jesus who is going to be born. No, like somebody must have seen it coming. And therefore, what did Shambhala do? Shambhala sent three people to actually confirm that Jesus was born because they didn't have telescopes to look all over the earth. Those three people who came to see if Jesus was born, they are called the three mages. And the story of the church says that three people who were astrologers, magicians, mages, and kings at the same time, came and paid a very strange visit of 48 hours. They came from God knows where for months and months. They saw baby Jesus and gave him incense and gold and whatever. They told them, run away because this king is going to try to kill the boy. And then they ran away back to where they came from. And people say uh, they must have come from a kingdom of the east. Really? What kingdom? Which? Where were the people who knew this? It was not a kingdom from the east. They came straight from Shambhala. Shambhala sent a delegation to make sure that Jesus was really born. And to confirm it. Yeah, the baby is born. Now the boulder is rolling. Now the snowball is going. And... Therefore, but then you will say, didn't you say that Shambhala is a place where the dead people are? So were those three people just three ghosts? Like how could they come on horseback, on camelback? That is one of the huge mysteries of Shambhala and you are going to see it's perfectly possible and I'm going to explain how and why. Before this, I will say another thing which defines what Shambhala is before I define about the location and issues like this. Shambhala is something which is of planetary relevance, which means it's made of spirits that reached enlightenment. A hundred years ago, or a hundred thousand years ago, on this planet. So Shambhala does not care about the spiritual fate of some spiritual civilization which now may exist around the star called Vega. Maybe there is a civilization on Vega. Shambhala is not entitled with worrying about that one. Shambhala worries about this one. This planet is their cradle. They emerged from this planet and they feel responsible for this planet. So Shambhala is not about extraterrestrials or universal things. It's only about the planet Earth. It's exactly like the mayor of a city has only friendly relationship with the mayors of other cities, but is actually not doing any administration or action about other cities. The mayor of the city is concerned with his city alone. That's what he's in charge of. Shambhala is in charge of this planet. Location of Shambhala, right? Let's start with the list of points. Like, okay, there could exist a strange thing like Shambhala, where you find Rumi and Francis of Assisi and whatever. Where would it be? 
First of all, we said immediately, it's not physical. And yet, we have the three mages who came to visit Jerusalem. They visited Bethlehem. So if it's not physical, how did they come? Why didn't they not come from the west? Why did they come from the east? So, here is what we know. Some, many of these things are never spilled freely and outlined. And I'm not considering very much of writing a book on these things. Because it's information which Shambhala itself doesn't want public. The fact that I do it here doesn't make it public. Because only a bunch of crazy people like you are going to listen and look at this. And these are people who are anyway into the spirituality. So you, even if some of you are just coming and going and passing by, you are a special category of people on the face of this earth. Because you are the rare breed which is called seekers. You are spiritual seekers. Some of you are more fanatic and more determined some of you are more wishy-washy and you don't know what the heck am I doing in this evening in Kopangan with this crazy guy. And therefore you are all on various degrees because there are not two people identical to each other on the face of this earth. But you are still in a peculiar category. It is allowed for me to talk to this category of people. Because this category of people is a minority. And these are the people who need to know about Shambhala who deserve to know about Shambhala, because Shambhala, as you are going to see further down, is somehow a part of your lives anyway. Even if you didn't know, Shambhala has been and will be a part of your life. It is possible that somebody from Shambhala made you come here tonight, telepathically, with their mind, without you having an inkling of that. Especially if there is some of you who came here by a strange coincidence. Think a little bit. What coincidence was that? And if you are going to be here for the next 10 years and open your crown chakra. What coincidence was that? How was it a coincidence that you came, you got attached to yoga, you practiced, you opened your higher chakras. And you started seeing or enjoying higher levels of consciousness. Can there be a coincidence about that? Only if you live in a world in which you believe in coincidences, I can tell you that my experience of life until now shows that there are no coincidences. Everything is all the time synchronicity and resonance. So coming back to our story, um, Shambhala indeed contains the Buddhas and the saints of the past. And we can conceive of the fact that if somebody stays in Shambhala for a thousand years, then say, you know what, a thousand years is a long time. Maybe I should go down there and do some physical work, be of service. So would it be possible for a master, because those are masters already, for a master from Shambhala to be reborn as a master? Yes. Masters can do whatever they want including that they can be reborn, although they don't have the karma to be reborn. They are not obliged to be reborn, but they can do it out of compassion or similar motivations. So, 
But what about the three mages? They were not reborn or something like this. What are we talking about there? What we know about Shambhala is this. Shambhala, to be able to be really close and operative to the earth, they have to stay in very close contact with the earth. They, through their meditation, they would have said, when we died... We rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and we go to a very, very high plane where we enjoy paradise-like states of consciousness and we are all there in Shambhala. What about humanity? Ah, humanity. Humanity is far, far, far down. That's not what Shambhala wants. So then they sacrifice this high position to rather stay low and be close, be at hand. And especially it appears, so it's a parallel universe. It's, but you would say the spirits of the dead, any one of you who did the art of dying or who did the metaphysical workshop knows that. And those of you who will do the art of dying next week, you are going to learn these things according to the yogic metaphysics. The spirits of the dead, 99% of them are in the astral world. If you have a grandmother that is dead, your grandmother is now a citizen of an astral world. The astral world is full of sub-levels, exactly as on Earth. It's not enough to say somebody is on planet Earth. But are they in Switzerland or are they in Somalia? Because it will make quite a difference if you live in Switzerland or if you live in Somalia. Life is very different in Switzerland from Somalia. So, in the subtle universes, if somebody is in an astral universe which is like Switzerland, or if somebody is in an astral universe which is like Somalia, makes a huge difference. Thus, we know, it's a well-known thing throughout world metaphysics, that the spirits of those that are dead are on a standby position, usually waiting for another reincarnation for about 300 years, Somewhere in the astral world. Shambhala, therefore, should be in the astral world. With the only difference that they don't reincarnate because they have reached enlightenment and they stop the process of reincarnation. And they reincarnate only if they want and when they want and how they want. However, what we know, the descriptions that were given by people and the few shocking people had contact with Shambhala, I will start taking you facts probably next time or two weeks from now, who actually was to Shambhala and under what conditions in history, what is known. Uh, we know this much, that Shambhala has created a sort of an artificial microclimate, like they are a subtle world, but they need an opening to the physical world. So they kind of dug themselves down in the etheric world. I hope you know what the etheric world make, means. It's essence, it's basic yoga, level number two, just above the physical world. The astral is number three, the etheric is number two, and the etheric is a very difficult place to be because it's called by the Tibetans bardo, in between. You are neither physical nor astral, you are in between. So... Shambhala has a part of it which is in between, just to be as close as possible, like right on the border of the visibility, in the energy. And actually, in Shambhala, 
there is not only Milarepa. There are probably a thousand and five hundred people like Milarepa. I don't know the names of all of them. If Milarepa and 1,499 other Milarepas put their Ajna Chakra to it, they can do whatever you can imagine that it's possible in this universe. So what did they do? They created a beam-me-down place. They created an outpost of Shambhala. They created a communication from Shambhala to the etherical world and even to the physical world. Imagine Shambhala like a top with children used as a toy. These spinning tops. The whole top is up here. But the top has one point of contact with the floor or with the table. So Shambhala is the top and then there is a touch point. An outpost, a platform, an opening, a stargate, a sort of an in-between thing, which makes it possible that people from Shambhala can materialize on earth and then go back. For this reason, it is known, and this outpost is one of the giveaways of Shambhala, which otherwise it's so very discreet, for very good reasons, because this outpost had to be somewhere. And it has changed its position. According to the Indian metaphysical history, human history is divided in cycles of 26,000 years. 25,868 years, the time of the procession of the equinoxes. And this 26,000 years is divided in four quarters. Like the, like the quadrant of a watch. And each one of these quadrants has about 6,400 years. These periods of 6,400 years, they are called in India, yugas, not yoga. U with U, yugas. And yugas means cycles, cycles of time. And the human history is made of four such quadrants called Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, Dvapara Yuga, and Kali Yuga. We are today, according to the science of time, in India and Tibet, in the last of them, which is called Kali Yuga. So this cycle continues after 26,000 years. It's like spring, summer, autumn, winter, spring, summer, autumn, winter. It just goes on non-stop. That's why I say more than 26,000 years ago, we don't even know who was on the face of this earth. They found a bullet in a, in a skull, a bull skull in Siberia, which is perforated by something like a bullet. It's not perforated with mechanical instruments. It's perforated by forensics by a bullet. The only problem is that it's 35,000 years old. There are no bullets, 35. War there were, but we don't know. They found artifacts like there is a buckle belt which is made of platinum but platinum melts at about 4000 degrees celsius temperature and the only way to obtain temperatures over 2000 degrees celsius is only by electric wire there is nothing which burns like coal or gas which can produce a temperature of 4000 degrees to melt platinum so that you can make a buckle belt, you have to heat it up to 4,000 degrees, 3,700 and something. 
And the question is, how did the primitives do that 40,000 years ago? There are lots of such confusing artifacts which tend to prove that this technological civilization that we have now is not the first. No, Again, it's the wall of silence. We don't have any formidable evidence. It's right there in the twilight zone. I, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm just simply saying that in India and Tibet, there is a science of the cosmic cycles of time. And according to these cosmic cycles of time, Shambhala has been in a different place in the earth, depending on those yugas. Like every 6,000 years, the top moves and it changes where it touches the table. It's in another place. Why? There are so many attempts to explain why Shambhala would move that, according to what is best from their standpoint. If I will have time, I will try to allude to that. Right now, that's not the most important. Just to give you an account to see that metaphysicians don't talk bullshit in the meaning, like they talk very precisely about this. They say that the first location of Shambhala not of Shambhala, but of the outpost of Shambhala on Earth, in this Manvantara, in this cosmic cycle of 26,000 years, so like 23,000 years ago, it was in a place in today's Scandinavia, in a place which the ancient Greeks speak about it, and they call it Hyperborea. Boreas is the northern wind, and Hyperborea is beyond the northern wind. And the Greek historians say it has been told to us that if you go in the direction of the northern winds, it gets colder and colder and it's snow and ice. And then if you go beyond that, there is another climate and everything is green and warm. And you find yourself in Hyperborea and the Hyperboreans live a thousand years of age and they are blonde and they have blue eyes and they are about five meters tall and stuff like that. It's very interesting that even the Egyptian dynasties, when they speak about the primary dynasties, the pharaohs of Egypt are listed that they lived a thousand years. It's interesting that in the Bible, the prophets in the Bible that lived before Noah, like Matushaleh and those guys, they lived somewhere between 600 to 950 years, long lives. It is also interesting that the Bible, in the episode with Noah and the flood of Noah, says that the world was polluted by some very fallen giants. It is even mentioned that the giants liked the daughters of men and were having sex with them. So why does the Bible say that the planet Earth, 6,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago, there was a race of giants living among us? In all the traditions we have this. Metaphysicians are the people who study all the traditions and see what fits. This is one of the very crazy things which fit. So, according to metaphysicians, you, we, I can't explain yet why. It's a long story, but I'm not going there now. I'm still in the primitive facts. Shambhala had an outpost somewhere far north in association with a high culture called Hyperborea the Hyperboreans. This culture in Treta Yuga, in the next Yuga, moved close to Atlantis. It seems that somewhere between 
18,000 years ago to 12,000 years ago, the center of the world was Atlantis. Which, again, there are so many correspondences, I don't even go there. And Shambhala went from Hyperborea to Ireland. There is a special frequency of the land of Ireland, which is mentioned in, in, in a rapport with Shambhala. And then somewhere related to Atlantis, we don't know where. But you know that Atlantis was supposed to be somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So somewhere in that area. Then, 12, 13,000 years ago, allegedly, Atlantis went down. Again, it's a long story. We are, if I would start telling you all these stories, collateral ones, I would have to talk 25 hours about this kind. Because each one of them is a big story. You can ask me in Q&A and so on. I'll be happy to tell you what I know about these things. I don't say that I know everything or that my knowledge is perfect. There, are, there is a lot to know about these things. When Atlantis went down, Shambhala moved its point of reference eastwards. So imagine from somewhere outside of Spain and Portugal, eastwards through the Mediterranean, towards the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Um, the most accurate opinion which I have heard about it connected this outpost of Shambhala which allegedly existed between 12,000 years ago to, six, uh, to until 6,000 years ago. It existed somewhere in the north or towards the northern ends of the Black Sea there is there a small island which the ancient Greeks call Leuka, Leukos, which means the white island, and which today, if I'm correct, it's called the island of the snakes, and geographically or politically belongs to Ukraine right now. A small island there. So they said that the, the Greeks said that there was a temple and a strange thing on that white island in the Black Sea. And it's related with many of the myths of the ancient Greece. Where did the Trojans came from? The civilization of Troy. The story of Jason and the Golden Fleece. For those of you who know Greek mythology, there is an expedition somewhere in the north of the Black Sea for retrieving the Golden Fleece. And a lot of other symbols are there. I can't go into all of it. And finally... 6,000 years ago when the world underwent its last major change with the flood of Noah and the brave new world that emerged after that, Shambhala has moved further east. The way you look, it would be this way, towards your right hand. So further eastward, which means towards Asia, and it located itself somewhere in a very inaccessible place between Tibet, China, Mongolia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan. If you just imagine all those countries like a circle, in the middle of there, there is a very strange area, which today, politically, belongs to China. It's a very bizarre desert place, high-altitude desert place, related with Gobi, with the Tian Shan chain of mountains and others. That's exactly in that place that the last connoisseurs that the last people of knowledge said 
that there was a village there, like a hamlet, and this village was the outpost of Shambhala. That village was so well known that there were landmarks around it, like milestones, which simply said, Shambhala, do not trespass. And people never dared to go in there. There was a Polish guy called Ferdinand Osendowski. He was the ambassador of Poland to Russia, and he was caught by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and somehow he did not manage to go west home, and the only way he could escape was that he traveled east and east, and then he reached somewhere in Gobi, and crossed Gobi by foot, and went to into Lhasa, and then to India, and from India he took a boat, he was repatriated by the British back home to Poland. So this man went on a huge trip, and he passed exactly around that area. And in, that's 1917, and we're talking 18, and we're talking about a politician, a Polish politician who didn't write science fiction novels. And he says that when he was in that area, he saw lights in the sky, he saw flying objects, he saw all sorts of things, and the people in that area, all of them knew about Shambhala, and they told them, what you see far there, it's the land of Shambhala, it's the outpost of Shambhala, and nobody is allowed to go there. That's where the rulers of the world live. And there has been even a British geographic expeditioner, you know, in the 19th century, the British, together with a few French and Germans, they wanted to discover all the world, to discover every island in the Pacific. Every, it was the age of the last geographical discoveries. People crossed Africa on foot, like Livingstone and Burton and others. They were the great exploration time. Of course, one of them crossed Asia. A hundred of them crossed Asia. And one of them happened to go exactly by that area. And then he said, I want to go in this area. Nobody has been there. And the locals told him, no, 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 no. Nobody goes there. That's the land of Shambhala. No, mortals are not allowed to go there. This guy was British and he said, what mortals? It's Queen Victoria who is the queen of the world, the empress. So what bullshit are you telling me? Britain rules the world, you know, so don't give me this shit that nobody can go. I am coming from the British Empire and I go wherever I want and wherever. And he paid people and he cajoled them and forced them and so on. And they started walking there. And indeed, at some point, he describes, this is a geograph. I forgot his name, his name is known. I have it in books. It's mentioned in books, like this is history from 19th century, late 19th century. And these guys passed by milestones. There were milestones which were in an unknown language, but which the locals knew that this means. And they were very afraid to continue, and he kept on promising them money and protection from the British Empire and whatever, and they hesitantly went in. And he says, as soon as they went 500 meters in, the weather changed. And he said, then I have seen the most monstrous storm that a human mind can imagine. Like something which is beyond hurricanes and mm, twisters, you know. It's something inimaginable. He said the amount, like the blackness of the sky, the wind, the thunders and everything were of such a density 
that he said it took no more than three, four minutes. All the porters just dropped all their things and they ran back and they told him, I, we told you, crazy idiot English guy, nobody comes in here. This is ruled by the lords of the world. And he himself found himself without porters, without anything. He turned back. He never went there at that time. So it seems indeed that although Shambhala is an invisible world, nevertheless it has some paranormal possibilities to cross over and to kind of materialize and dematerialize because some of the people from Shambhala have this power and they are pooling it with everybody from Shambhala. So even if Ramana Maharishi doesn't have this power, Milarepa can clap him on the shoulder and he says, I can do it for you, it's okay. I know you don't have this, you will get this power one day. Until then, I can prop it for you, you know. So it's like, you need to go, I can make it happen, and so on. So, Shambhala is not physical, but it always liked to keep a contact. The last known contact, I'm going to tell you things after Chinese invasion of Tibet and so on, but not tonight. Because I'm, now I'm telling you the generalities of the story. I start with the generalities of this story. So, the Shambhala liked always to have a physical point of contact. And in the last 6,000 years, it has been somewhere north of Tibet. If you draw a line north of Tibet, and you would go in the no man's land there, uh, somewhere in that desert... It's very strange area, salt water deserts, strange mountain chains and lakes, uninhabited area. Again, the Mongols are, but much further northeast of that. So that area was the last known projection point of Shambhala. So when we ask location of Shambhala, we say it's not physical, and yet, there is something physical to be said about it. And Shambhala, therefore, is an intermediary zone, more like a parallel universe. It's a buffer, so that the great spirits can keep close, can stay very close, because they undertook a mission, they have karma yoga to do, and for that karma yoga, they need to be close enough. And so... Let's end with one idea for tonight, because next week I'm going to continue with part two from here and go deeper, much deeper into these things. But uh, who is in Shambhala then? First of all, everybody is clear about this. Enlightened beings of every single religion and spiritual lineage together and concerned with the future and evolution of this planet. It has been approximated in the book of Revelation of John, just to give you the source, that when John had the vision of how many people are the ones who are fully spiritually realized in the end of the days at the second coming of Christ, in the book of the Revelation, John says 144,000. That's why the number of 100,000 which I gave to you was not completely out of the top of my head. There is John, the Apostle of Christ, when he saw the end of the Yuga, 
He said that at that time there are 144. He used the highly symbolic number, which is 12 times 12,000, because there were 12 apostles of Jesus, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, there are 12 astrological signs, and 12 spokes of Anahata Chakra, and 12 movements in the sun salutation, and 12 mantras of the sun. And we could continue with this, of course. But the point being... Uh, metaphysicians approximate that around that number is a pretty good evaluation of the enlightened population of Shambhala. So Shambhala is a cartel of 144,000 Buddhas living somewhere in the sky, close. They hear us right now. Like they can look and see with their mind everything which happens. And if I mention Swami Shivananda, of course Swami Shivananda says, somewhere down there somebody is talking about me. Right? So what the heck are they saying? Right? Are they calling for my help or what? So that's what we're talking about. So first of all, there are these highly enlightened beings concerned with the future and evolution of the planet. Tibetan yoga says, for example, if you are highly spiritual and if you are ready to serve ready to serve, like a samurai serves his daimyo, no questions asked, because you don't see everything, you don't understand everything, then you might be connected to Shambhala or accepted in Shambhala like auxiliary personnel. Exactly as a knight, a knight had a squire, a young boy who was not yet a knight, but was serving the knight. So the knights from Shambhala, they have some squires. So it's not just the Buddhas of Shambhala, there is a lot of auxiliary personnel, so to speak. Yeah? Like others, which are hierarchically subordinated. So it's a relatively small oasis, a man who wrote one of the best books written about Shambhala, a man called Andrew Thomas, a follower of Buddhist teachings of Tibet, he put it as a title of his book. He called it Shambhala, Oasis of Light. It's like an oasis in the desert. It's like a clearing in the forest. So Shambhala is an oasis in the sky. And in that oasis, this is like an island in the sky. And on that island in the sky, there are 150,000 Buddhas with maybe 10 times as much bodhisattvas and highly spiritual people. And there they unfold a colossal activity, which as gradually as I'm going to talk to you about it, you are going to be more surprised and more surprised and more surprised. And then when you are going to hear facts and historical stories, then you are going to be totally in shock because slowly, slowly you'll realize it's been there all the time, only that human beings are not allowed to see it. Exactly as when you have wolves in a reservation, they never see the forester. They never see the ranger. The ranger leaves them water, leaves them food, puts a boulder of salt somewhere, but the animals in the reservation never really see the ranger. 
the ranger is trying to keep the habitat ecologically undisturbed. So that's why Shambhala is not going around showing to you that there is a Shambhala. Because for Shambhala you are like a reservation. And in this reservation the history of humanity happens. Shambhala is beyond this reservation. They have finished their history in this reservation. And they have to obey or abide by some rules out of which one very important, which slowly, slowly you'll understand how and why, is this discretion. That's why Shambhala doesn't want to be publicized too much. That's why Shambhala is very secretive for a variety of reasons. And authentic revelations about Shambhala are few and very problematic. And usually they are not done publicly. I'm going to talk to you next time about René Guénon and what he did, an eminent French metaphysician, and what was the outcome of his revelations about Shambhala and things like this. And because of this, there is also a lot of perverted information about Shambhala. So take it easy. First, let me give you the guidelines of it, and then you will be able to choose to see exactly what is what. Just to show you how clear this story with the hierarchical things which are there, here is a crazy one. If any one of you studies the story of the gypsies, today politically correct, they are called the Roma people, the Roma people, colloquially called gypsies, especially in Europe. The gypsies, anthropologists today believe that the gypsies came to the West somewhere around the 11th century, somewhere between the 7th to the 12th century. So let's say around the 10th century, like a thousand years ago. And these gypsies are just some tribes from India. Because the language which they speak today, which is called Romanes, this Romanes language is relatively close to Hindi. It's like one of the Indian vernaculars. And they even, anthropologists tell you, that it's some tribes which come from Gujarat or Rajasthan, some parts of the western corner of India. This theory, like many other scientific theories, is full of bullshit which is not explained. For example, the gypsies appeared simultaneously in a hundred years in all of Europe. And when they appeared in Europe, if you put them together, the gypsies from England with the gypsies from Bohemia and the gypsies from today's Romania and wherever, they were meant to be at least a hundred thousand of them. A hundred thousand people walking from India to Central Europe would not be possible without traces. Because first of all, it would be like grasshoppers. They would be eating everything in their way. Because there would be a hundred thousand migrants, not to mention that they would have to cross the deserts of Arabia and Persia and other things and all sorts of inhabited area. In the 10th century, the Islamic culture was very strong already. How did these people cross all the Islamic in M kingdoms without being mentioned in the chronicles? Like the Islamic culture had astronomers, historians, poets, philosophers, 
At least one of them would have said it was funny. Last year, there was a cohort of Indian people crossing our land and moving northeast. At least one would have mentioned it. There is no mention in any historical chronicles of any migration wave of people coming from India to Europe. Moreover, many of these gypsies... They don't have the DNA of Indians. As those of you who live in Europe and who have lived or spoken with gypsies from England or from France, many of them are blonde. They are gypsies which are blonde. So definitely they cannot be Indian. So what's the story? Well, I think there is a French metaphysician called... uh, I think it's Jean-Claude Frere, I don't remember right now, but this guy has a, a, there is a book in French which is called Le Le Mystère des Bohémiens. Gypsies in in France are sometimes called Bohemians, from where there comes this Bohemian lifestyle, that you have a cart and a horse and you have no house and you are a nomad and a painter and whatever, and, you know, these romantic views that the gypsies are freedom-seeking Bohemians, artists, and so on. I'm not going to go there, I'm just justifying the name, And uh, guess what is written in that book from a metaphysical standpoint? That the gypsies were transferred in underground tunnels and caves from Shambhala, and they emerged all at the same time, because these 100,000 gypsies are a population expelled from Shambhala. They are servants from Shambhala, who became a bit too naughty, and then the masters of Shambhala said, you know what, why don't you just pack and go back on earth, you know, like, fuck off, basically. So that's why the gypsies have mystical abilities, they do divination, they have forms of clairvoyance, of healing, and all sorts of things, because they were associated with a lot of things from Shambhala, and they even say that their god is in the center of the earth, which is connected with other wild things, which you may have heard about or not, and the gypsies basically are a population expelled from Shambhala. If you are going to read wild stories about the presence of the Tibetans in the Third Reich of Adolf Hitler, you are going to see that partly they were responsible for the deportation of the gypsies in concentration camps. Like the Tibetans, didn't like the gypsies because they were told by the masters from Shambhala that these people are rascals which we threw out of Shambhala. So the chain of causality here is incredibly long and provocative and there are so many things which are not known. I'm just scratching the surface of things just to show you how mysterious the whole thing is. And on the other hand, a German baron becomes the Bogdokan of Mongolia. Think about it. And it's historical. You can search. And then you can say, why did we never learn in school that in the 1930s, there was, when Tibetans were friendly with the Germans, the ruler of Mongolia was a German guy. Like, what the heck are we talking about? It's truly, truly twisted. 
And you are going to hear more like the facts are really disturbing when we'll get to the facts. Right now, I'm staying only to the generalities of it. So we'll stop here by saying this. Shambhala is a subtle world where the souls of the enlightened beings and other highly spiritual beings are. Shambhala is an interface between planet Earth and God. Shambhala are the masters, the great masters. Some of them have incredible psychic powers. Some of them are just very pure and spiritual. And therefore they have spiritual power, but not necessarily paranormal abilities. Shambhala is the place where the Buddhas of the past are. And Shambhala is taking care of this planet. And it keeps itself out of sight in the blind spot where you can't see it. Precisely because they don't want humanity to know of its existence. Or even if they know, they want humanity to shake their head and say, I think this is a legend. This sounds like a utopia. This sounds like a myth. I hope that for you in this school and for a few other interested people, I'll manage to actually demonstrate to you slowly, slowly in two, three, four, five weeks that it's not at all a utopia and that everybody knew about it and it's mentioned from all different angles in all the possible ways there. So Shambhala is a reality. And the question is, why are we talking now about it? Because there is an Easter of the Shambhalians, of the Shambhala people. But it's not celebrated this coming Sunday, because this one is still an Easter celebrated by human beings, like in Eastern Europe, Russia, and those places. So Shambhala simply chooses to work on Easter, and take a holiday after Easter. And that's why they celebrate Easter one week later. I will tell you more. So that's why there is a resonance, a peculiar resonance about Easter and Shambhala, not this coming Sunday on the 8th, but the next coming Sunday on the 15th of April. Next week I will try to clarify that to make you prepared for that meditation. I have opened the pages of the thick book called Shambhala. This time I'm taking it slowly so I can tell you everything I want. And uh, unfortunately, I don't take questions in the satsang. I can make an exception when I finish this series of satsangs and do one of Q&A. But it's better for most of you if you address your questions in the Q&A. During the week on Tuesdays, I have Q&As. Most of you have access to those Q&As. If you have questions... It's much better that you get the feedback there, and that meanwhile, I continue here with the step-by-step presentation, what Shambhala is. I did an introduction. I simply said, so what is Shambhala then? Now you, how you heard what Shambhala is. It's an island in the sky. Location, not physical, but they have a contact somewhere, somehow. And approximately, a first approximation... Who is in Shambhala? I'm going to continue with thrilling questions like, what do we know about Shambhala? What do we know about the structure of Shambhala? What are the Shambhala? What does it mean as an archetype in the human cultures? The symbols of Shambhala, the activities of Shambhala, and finally, the very thrilling, very long and thrilling paragraph about the historical evidence of Shambhala, which you are going to see, it's not at all a joke. It's 
always there. Somebody has shown me 10, 10 years ago photos of one of the oldest churches in Christianity, which is Hagia Sophia from Constantinopolis, which today is called Istanbul, and the church is not a church anymore. It has been turned into a mosque by the Islamic conquerors of Istanbul. But the church, the building, exists. Guess what is on the ceiling of the vault of this ancient church? The Yantra of Shambhala is right there, repeated tens of times. It's like a motive repeated there. What the heck is the Yantra of Shambhala known in Tibet doing on the roof of one of the oldest Christian churches in the world, presently a mosque? So that's why I say there are many, many, many mysteries. We'll go there. This will be the part which will give you most goosebumps because you are going to start realizing that this, the, this whole thing sounds like a fairy tale, but it's a fairy tale which seems to be very, very real, scary, real. And if it's real, then we are talking about something beautiful and great. With this, let us conclude for tonight, in night of a, enough of an introduction. Let's call this Shambhala Part 1, and we'll continue next Thursday with Part 2. Thank you all for joining tonight and see you in the coming Q&A lectures. This Sunday, don't forget that for Easter, this weekend, there are two activities. There is the Holy Light Ceremony around 4 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, which is a very special thing that most of you have never heard about or seen, which is actually happening in Jerusalem around 12 o'clock on Saturday, 12 noon. And on Sunday... Again, we have second time our Christ-like consciousness meditation because we did it for the Roman Catholic Easter last Sunday and we do it for the Orthodox Easter next Sunday. We celebrate it for each of these Christian denominations because they do celebrate it separately. So enough of this. Uh, we'll continue as I said.